This episode is brought to you in partnership with Life Kitchens. Life create kitchens to be lived in, planned around your life and the way you live it. Explore their unique ranges and book a design consultation for a personal and practical approach to kitchens. Visit life-kitchens.co.uk We recently made an outdoor piece of furniture totally out of stone. It was actually a television cabinet that during the day or when it's not raining, it actually looks like a piece of sculpture, but at the press of a button, it opens up and there's a television inside. So you can imagine that's quite a tricky thing to make, to make everything waterproof, the electronics work, and make a beautiful object as well. Hello, I'm Carol Annett from Country and Townhouse magazine. Welcome to the House Guest podcast, where I chat with experts from the world of interior design and decoration the people behind the houses, hotels, shops and brands you see in glossy magazines like ours. If you listen on the Entail app, there's more information and images on the projects and people mentioned. And if you're doing up your own home, hopefully you'll pick up some tips for yourself. Mark Boddington opted out of the brewing family business for life at a drawing board. His company, Silver Lining Furniture, designs and creates some of the most precious pieces of furniture money can buy, and all from an industrial site in North Wales, in a building that gives no hint at all of the magic that happens inside. Hi, Mark. Lovely to see you. Now, I'm wondering, does that describe you? The exterior doesn't really give you a hint of all that passion and creativity that's bubbling inside you. I think that is true. I mean, I'm quite a quiet person, and I remember... Not, not, I'm not saying you have a boring exterior. That sounds quite rude. <laughs> I remember getting a commission off, off a, a quite famous media star. And I went home. I was still living with my parents at that time. It was probably five years into the business. And I told my father, who, and I don't think he knew it was. It was, it was a Hollywood star. And he said, he just turned around and said, I've never heard of him. Are you making any money? <laughs> So I've sort of learnt, because my father was a very sort of hard shell exterior person, to, to sort of really work on you know, making sure that the passion comes across. But I mean, it's very difficult to change, you know, your genes, etc. So tell us a bit about what Silver Lining does and the kind of furniture you create. Well, we, we create furniture for collectors worldwide. It could be for their house project. It could be for a plane. It could be for a super yacht. And, and you know, these people are pioneers in their own industry. They're very, very successful. And they actually want to put something back by, you know, collecting the very best of today, be it art, sculpture, furniture. And what we've tried to do is link traditional furniture making with technology. So how can we push boundaries with craftsmanship? How can we show clients, you know, what's possible? And I was going to describe just one of the pieces because I was very fortunate enough to come and see you. You have something called the Torricelli table. And these are mostly one-off pieces that was named after the 17th century mathematician. And it's blue English oak, nickel, Bianco, is it Bianco Torre marble? Toro, Bianco Toro. Toro, with with a sort of fifty thousand pound price tag. I mean, this, this is we're not talking anything ordinary here. You're used by the very top interior designers and your clients um, who come to you, and and also not only the interior designers but private clients. You very much create a relationship with them, and quite often they 
they fly in in their private jet to the little airstrip next to you. And it, and I love this idea of you kind of coming to North Wales to this very ordinary in the loveliest sense of the world and coming to see you and seeing, you know, they have a passion for furniture as much as you do in many respects. Yeah, I mean, like our building, it's almost like coming to an Aladdin's cave. I mean, we talk about what we do about making magic and that's the excitement we see on clients' face, faces when they, they walk into our gallery and they really, they can see and touch the work we do. But, you know, acquiring beautiful objects now, it's not just about the acquisition. You know, people want to be involved. They want to see the process. They want to understand how it's designed. They want to meet the artisan that made it. They want to know about how this artisan got to this skill level. How did they train? They want to take part. You know, they're experts in their field, but they actually want to learn themselves and be part of that process. And how many people do you have working with you now? We have, we have 64 people, which is a mix. Obviously, we have some administration, but the, the main majority of everyone in the company are creatives. So they may do research and innovation. They may be a chemist. They may be operate a laser, they may operate a 3D printer, they may be a creative designer. So we have, you know, lots of different skills. But for us, it's about looking what's new. And we look at lots of different, you know, we look at nature, we look at the skies, we, we get inspiration from everywhere. And I, I know you, you work with wood and leather and glass and lots of precious objects. Why do you need a chemist? Well, because, you know, we always want to look at, you know, do something better than, than, than's been done before. For example, we we're developing a technology where we can dye veneers or wood veneers, which are thin slices of veneers, any Pantone colour. And I think we're, you know, in the world of wood, as it were, we're the leaders in that. So, you know, you can have your Hermes orange, you know, you can have your, your Ryanair yellow if you wanted. What I also love about what you do is that it's very much sort of taking the past and bringing in the new because quite often you have some high-tech elements can you describe one of the pieces that you've done that has a sort of secret capacity that only the owner has known about well I think you know one of the things we want to do is connect with the personality of the owner so if they for example have an interest in formula one or graphic art you know we will always find a connection you know, the, with the piece of furniture. So it may be in the way we do the colour, it may be the structure. I mean, currently we're doing a, a table that almost looks like melting candles because the client is in love with surrealist art. So his, his piece of furniture actually melts as it goes across the room. So it's, it's about having that connection with the person's personality. How can we make them feel, you know, every time they touch it or walk past it every day, you know, that feeling of magic that, wow, this is something beautiful, it's something tangible, and it gives me pleasure. And it's, and it's also very, of course, it has to be functional. You know, these pieces aren't flippant. They have to be used. And what about um, electronic elements? Because you have tables that sort of come, come out. I think there was a cocktail cabinet I saw, which sort of has a motor which opens out like a flower. Yeah. Yes, we just finished a, a piece for a client in Asia. And as well as it being a banqueting table, so the center rotates so they can have Chinese banquets. And that's all, uh, basically you wave your hand in front of it and it'll move. And then when you wave your hand, it'll stop again. So that's one element that's a sort of surprise. And the second element is after they finish their banquet, 
the, the center of the table lifts up and it's actually a drinks cabinet for Mao Tai Chinese wine because the client's a big collector of, of uh, Chinese wine. So we do love that sort of, you know, as I say, we call it making magic in our furniture. How can you have an element of surprise? But it, it could be just a simple desk that when they pull the drawer out, the details on the sides of the drawer, you know, those beautiful dovetails cut by hand showing, you know, supreme craftsmanship. It doesn't have to be a, you know, a showstopper. It's, it's just, it's the back, the front, the underneath, how it's delivered, the service that people get. People often ask for extraordinary pieces of furniture. For example, we recently made an outdoor piece of furniture totally out of stone. It was actually a television cabinet, but during the day or when it's not raining, it actually looks like a piece of sculpture, but at a press of a button, it opens up and there's a television inside. So you can imagine that's quite a tricky thing to make, to make everything waterproof, the electronics work and make a beautiful object as well. Yeah, uh, and hours and hours of testing. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And we've actually got some very funny pictures of literally pouring buckets of water over it and testing it and people getting quite wet during the process. But, you know, that that is that's an important part. You know, if someone spends a lot of money on a piece of furniture, it has to work. It has to be durable and it has to be there for the next generation. And actually, from a sustainable point of view, you know, if if, if an item is quite expensive, but it lasts 100, 200 years, it's actually got a very low carbon footprint but also the cost, you know, per minute of enjoying it is very, very low compared to, you know, we all buy throwaway objects that we keep for a week and we put it in the bin. Yeah. And how long does a piece of furniture take to make? Well, it's a good question. I had a client today and I'm going to have to tell them that one piece is going to take nine months and I know they want it tomorrow. But, you know, this, this piece has nearly 2,000 hours in it. And the trouble is with the internet and online shopping, everyone wants everything yesterday. And even with bespoke objects, but you know, our skill sets, you know, it takes so long to, to train these people that we have limited resource, you know, even with 60 people and we have quite a long waiting list. So, but I mean, we've had pieces that'll take two and a half years. And, and is that, when you say the process, is that because of the carving or... I mean, what, what sort of processes take, take that long? Anything that has a high element of hand skill, because obviously if it can be put on a machine, that speeds things up. So it's anything where it needs, yeah, you're, you're correct, carving, it could be inlay, it could be a three, you know, 3D shape, uh, take a long time to make. Um, it could just be the whole series of the processes, because often when you look at our finishes and you've seen some of them, there's layer upon layer of detail. And it may involve, you know, 10, 15 different processes to get that final decorative effect. And what about your, um, the workforce? Because I know you have a, an amazing apprenticeship program and um, you're very encouraging with, with the young people that, have, that are working with you. How's that been over the last few months? Well, I think it's more important than ever. I mean, we've been very fortunate. Our workshop or shop floor has been totally open. Obviously, because we're in Wales, due to the regulations, uh, people that can work at home have to work at home, which and that's worked very well. And actually, from a creative point of view, it's allowed people to think more. And I think we've become more creative because of COVID. Obviously, on the shop floor, we've continued with training people and a lot of extra support because a lot of our people are young people. And, you know, 
as we all know, we haven't seen our families for quite some time and that can, that can bring additional pressures. So that sort of pillar of work and they've been stable and they can feel happy and confident work has, has become more important than ever. And I think the business will benefit of that when we come out the other side. And do you sort of feel quite paternal towards um, that? You know, I know when I when I was there, it's it's a real sort of there is a, fee, a kind of family feeling. There are no kind of areas that nobody else can go into and it's all very open and um, very friendly. Yeah, I think, you know, after 36 years, you know, I have a duty, A, to make sure that everything we've we've created and built on, you know, doesn't get lost. Uh, my wife and I have young children. I'd, be, I'd love it if the next generation, you know, there's an old adage, the first generation uh, sets it up, the second one builds on it and the third one spends it. Well, I'd be very happy if, if my children build on it and took it to the next level. And also it'd be a great shame you know, all the skill sets we've developed and the creativity if it disappeared. So I do feel, um, you know, that drive, but obviously I can't live forever and something needs to happen. But I also, you know, if, if there's a problem at work, I do stay awake, even after 36 years with, with managers and things, you know, I, I really care. And, and I mean, last night I was thinking about something, I was up at four and reading, how could I improve on this? So, it, you know, for me, life's always about learning. I mean, even, you know, I love cooking and I'm always trying to develop new recipes, you know, and push, you know, how can I make that plate of food look even more enticing, you know, just the way it's laid out or the plate it's on, you know, it's about detail. And what about your, I can't remember what you call them, Innovation Fridays? Yeah, on Fridays or one day a month each Friday, we have what's called an Innovation Friday where people can play or they can go and play golf. I mean, recently we did it for mental health and we focused on mental health. So people want to do things that they enjoyed or, or go and do something different. But we found we don't actually have to have innovation anymore because it's happening week in, week out because we've created a, an atmosphere where making mistakes is actually good and we can learn from mistakes. You know, some of the greatest inventions, we all know the famous one of post-it notes that came about by a mistake of someone trying to develop a glue that wouldn't work properly. But I hey, didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even um, the other one is penicillin. That was coming about by mistake. I forget who discovered it, but he left some uh, dishes with mold growing in for too long. He went on holiday and when he came back, he noticed one was slightly different with this mold on and it protected whatever he was doing the tests on. And that's how penicillin was discovered Brilliant. just by accident, you know. So take us back to the beginning, Mark. Why furniture? And, you know, you, you obviously decided the brewing business wasn't for you, but why, why did you decide to go into... I think it was the passion from a very young age. My mother was a, a war teenager, so she actually never went to school. She was self-taught. She taught herself, she, her first job age 14 actually in the war was working in a cafe. So she learned to teach herself and then she taught herself upholstery. She made all her own curtains. She was an exceptional cook. And I think that really ingrained with me, you know, and, and for example, where my parents used to live when I was young, um, my mother and I, we dug a one acre pond ourselves with a spade. So I, was, I always knew what effort was. But also, but it, it really brushed off. My mother used to take me, she, she used to restore antiques for the house. 
So we used to go to every antique fair. I love, I remember Arthur Negus on the Antiques Roadshow. I think I've been to every National Trust property with a collection of furniture in the north of England, you know, Chatsworth, Harwood House, you know, and seeing these, because I think if you want to do something, you need to learn about the history. And, you know, furniture history is really interesting. You know, we only had oak furniture to the 1600s because there was wood from no other countries. Then when we discovered the Americas and Asia, we started seeing wood, exotic woods like satinwood and mahogany, because they were used as ballast, you know, in the boats. And then furniture design changed. And then, of course, technology, the Industrial Revolution came and machines came. So the history of furniture actually follows industrial development and how man has sort of expanded in its in the way we you know know about the world yeah so did you start working for somebody else or did you always just was it your business right from the start yeah I mean I I did O levels and got plenty of O levels I did A levels you know and I got two two D's and a C I think and I needed two A's and a B to go and do land management do something I, my father or I thought my father wanted me to do and so that was the end of that. And then my sister just said, well, why didn't you do what you love? Because, you know, and it, everyone jokes about it. I'd, I'd won every sort of woodworking prize at every school I'd been to or gardening prize. So she said, well, why don't you do that? And I sort of said, well, my father won't let me. He said, well, just go and ask him. Anyway, I did. And he very kindly paid for me to go and train, you know, with John Makepeace, who, who we all know, the celebrated furniture designer. And the rest is sort of history. There's sort of that pressure so I went at, at uh, age 19 um, and I was there for two years, did a, a course in uh, design, craftsmanship, small business management. I didn't learn much about small business, but age 21, <laughs> I set up a business. But my advice to anybody, if you're going to set up a business, the younger you start, because it's a learning curve. So that's what I did. And we were very fortunate that our first premises was on the late Duke of Westminster and, and the Duchess of Westminster's estate. And they were very helpful. They became patrons and word spread. And then we started going to America. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Um, Did you, do you ever get to see any of these magnificent pieces actually in situ? I, I do, but not as much as I was like. I mean, a lot of the people we work for, you know, are very, very high profile and it's difficult to get access. And But it also depends on the end client. We have some clients who are, you know, the household names, but it's like talking to your brother. You know, every year I get a Christmas present and a birthday present from a client and they don't just do it to me. They do it to everybody they've interacted with. But if, if you knew who the client was, you can see why they're successful because they are brilliant with people worldwide. Yeah. Uh, but I do, you know, when you see furniture in the workshop, it looks very small. Yeah. Because of buildings. And you, you often think, well, God, is that desk too small? And of course, when you see it in the room, you see it's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Well, I, I promise you, Mark, if I'm ever fortunate enough to order a piece of silver lining furniture, I'll invite you to come and see it. Well, that's, that's very, uh, very, <laughs> or, uh, I'm sure we could come to some sort of arrangement. <laughs> so just finally, tell me, so if you are such an amazing cook, what's your best dish? If you're gonna wow somebody, if you're gonna wow your wife on Valentine's night, what are you gonna cook? 
Well, the, I'm trying to think what I cooked to her, Tara, for her first date. I remember the pudding was a, a black cherry and chocolate, um, like a souffle, but it's it's still soft. So when you take it out of the oven, it's, part of it's molten chocolate and the, and the rest is like cake. I'm trying to think oh, of the name. Clever, clever. Um, which is actually quite hard to do. But I love, uh, you know, anything new. I mean, um, for me, it's about experimenting. And often, you you know, the simplest things can make the, the most fantastic dish. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. Well, it's really lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much, Mark. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to House Guests from Country and Townhouse magazine with me, Carol Annett. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on iTunes or Entail, where you can also find images, links and notes to enhance each episode. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Carol W. Annett. And keep up to date on all the podcast news and show notes online at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash podcast. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. For more news and views in the world of interior design, sign up to our newsletter at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And why not listen in to our sister podcast, Breakout Culture with Lord Ed Vasey and Charlotte Fruity Metcalf. <laughs>